This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, we should probably acknowledge and accept that the issue of police violence and police accountability is not something that's going to easily go away, nor uh, is it something that has not been a part of America's history. Some jurisdictions we hear a lot about more than others, but there are still many, many things going on. Um, I share this with you, uh, having been involved in most recent months with the case in Akron, Ohio, and the shooting of Jalen Walker. Um, and a lot of activities planned around that during Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. But today, we're going to talk about the Oakland Police Department. The book is entitled, The Writers Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. A brand new book, newly released. The authors are Ali Winston, who is an independent reporter covering criminal justice, privacy, and surveillance. His work has been rewarded with several awards, including the George Oak Award for local reporting in 2017. He's a graduate of the University of Chicago and the University of California, Berkeley. He lives in New York. The co-author is Darwin Bond Graham. He has reported on gun violence for The Guardian and was an enterprise reporter for the East Bay Express. His work has also appeared with ProPublica and other leading national and local outlets. He holds a doctorate in sociology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and was the co-recipient of the George Polk Award for local reporting in 2017. He lives in Oakland. Ali and Darwin, welcome to Make It Plain. How are you both? Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. It Doing is, well. <laughs> wonderful. It is a pleasure to have you. Um, so uh, do I have this right? Oakland um, has been... I guess, for lack of a better word, under review of longer than any other police department? That's right. The Oakland Police Department has been under a, uh, a cons form of a consent decree, a binding court-ordered uh, court uh, reform program requiring overhauls to its internal affairs um, processes and to its internal discipline mechanism, uh, several other procedures, several other aspects of the department that have evolved over the years. Uh, it's been under this agreement since 2003. So we're on the 20th year this month of what's called a negotiated settlement agreement that came about as a result of a very uh, egregious police brutality and corruption scandal in the early 2000s. So that's outstripped any other consent decree of its kind. Uh, involving a law enforcement agency, LAPD, Washington, D.C., Metro uh, PD, Seattle PD, New Orleans PD, none of these consent decrees have gotten remotely close to the 20-year, two-decade span that Oakland has, um, has reached. It's a kind of sad mark, but here we are. What was that scandal that, that led to this decree? Yeah, it was, it was in the year 2000, in the summer, a rookie police officer named Keith Batt, who had just graduated from the Oakland Police Academy. He had been assigned to patrol part of a city called West Oakland, predominantly African-American. 
um, Keith Bat was a white officer. His old training officer was named Clarence Mabanig. Um, and Cla- Clarence Mabanig was part of a group of officers in the department who were very aggressively enforcing uh, different kinds of laws. They uh, were running what they had deemed to be an anti-narcotics program in West Oakland. And they were doing so because the mayor at the time, Jerry Brown, had promised to make Oakland safer than Walnut Creek. Walnut Creek is this little, mostly white suburb to the east of Oakland. And so Jerry Brown and other city leaders had told the police department, take the gloves off, hit the corners, be physical, make your play, and we'll back you. Some of the officers in the department took this to mean do whatever you feel like you need to do to enforce the law. And so this group of officers ended up being accused of and and keep that witness them beating people, um, kidnapping at least one individual, planting drugs on people, writing false police reports, um, engaging in a variety of different criminal activities. Um, when the scandal hit the, when the, when this hit this, the newspapers, it instantly became a scandal and people realized that something was deeply wrong in Oakland. So that's what led to the consent decree. Um, because there was a, there were criminal trials for these officers, but there was also a civil rights lawsuit filed by several attorneys, Jim Channon and John Burris on behalf of over a hundred, about 119 individuals who had been abused by the writers. And that civil rights lawsuit ended with the city agreeing to be put under federal court oversight to reform the police department. And if I may, it's important to note that the federal government, the United States Department of Justice, neither the DOJ, federal DOJ, nor the California State Attorney General stepped up to bring that action, that what's formerly known as a pattern and practice action, which is the mechanism by which police departments are brought under formal consent decrees by the federal government or state governments, which have similar legislation that allow them to do that, to take that extraordinary step. Um, both DOJ, state DOJ and federal DOJ punted uh, for a number of reasons. So by, you know, by hook or by crook, this is how Oakland got to the current stage that it's at. It's also important to note that the involvement of private attorneys might actually be one of the reasons why Oakland has been held to a higher standard than other police departments, because as we know, law enforcement is subject to the whims of politics and the current administration and during Republican administrations, but police reform doesn't happen. Like that's just a very blatant fact that, you know, years of evidence can, can support. Unless law enforcement is being used to put down a direction. Incorrect. Yeah, that's a different facts. <laughs> and that's up. Oh, yeah. Couple of, and that's something where I'm like, whoa, okay. Thought y'all were back in the blue. That's what you all supposed to be doing. But anyway, uh, that's another show. Uh, <laughs> um, you said there were criminal trials for the officers, correct? How did those come out? Both those trials resulted in either acquittals or hung juries. Um, and some of the hung juries hinged on one or two people who from the off um, are reporting and contemporaneous reporting from the time showed that these jurors just had it in their head that no, these cops were doing what they had to do to clean up the streets. Oakland is a violent place. I'm tired of the criminals having free reign. Basically, they uh, 
got off because of this idea of no, what we term and other people have termed, other um, writers and thinkers have termed noble cause corruption, whereby the ends justify the means. You know, well, you had to crack some, you had to crack some eggs to, to make an omelet. You know, that's, maybe some people have to get canned of pepper spray and, and, uh, emptied into their mouth. Maybe some people need their uh, feet beat so badly that they won't, they won't be able to walk or come back to the same block and deal drugs in the same place. Or, you know, just be out on a certain street at the wrong time of night. Uh, maybe somebody needs to get choked for disrespect to cop because, hey, don't disrespect the cops. Yeah, that that's unfortunately what, what, what you're sharing is not breaking news at all, unfortunately. I'm not surprised to hear that. So they were called the writers. How did that name come about? They named themselves that or the community? Yeah, it, it came about through a story that the police officers started telling themselves. It was sort of meant to be a funny story here's how it went in police locker rooms or squad cars or lineups um the story started circulating that one day an african-american man had been driving his car in west oakland broad daylight and he was pulled over by a police officer the police officer walked up to his car said sir may i see your license and registration and you know, took that information back to his squad car and ran it through the radio and, you know, came back to the man, the gentleman in his car and handed him his information and wrote him a ticket for whatever infraction, you know, maybe it was speeding or something. And uh, said, you know, here, sir, is your ticket and such, such date you'll be, you know, um, show up to court. And the man in the car uh, looked at the officer and said, I thank you. And the officer was really puzzled. And the officer apparently asked him why he was thanking him. And the man in the car said, well, you're, you're just so nice. You're so nice to um, It's not like this. At night, the writers come out. What the man was referring to was the fact that in West Oakland at the time, the daytime shift, the squad, um, a lot of the officers on it were a lot more courteous than the officers at night. We included the group of officers known as the riders and a lot of other officers. And they, they did not use courteous language. And they, they rode around in unmarked vans and squad cars looking to abduct people and jump out on people and use extreme physical force to affect arrests and to engage in that criminal activity. So that's how the writer's name first emerged. And it, it just that story was shared in the department. And some of the officers ended up adopting that name for themselves, becoming the writers. You mentioned some of the things they had done, planting drugs and whatnot. And, and, and none of those sound unusual. I might've, you might've said it earlier and I missed it. You said abduction. That's right. Now, talk to us about that. Yeah. One individual in particular, there was a pretty clear case of um, kidnapping. Um, his name was Delphine Allen. He was walking on the street late at night. He may or may not have had a can of beer in his hand. Um, and the, the riders were in a van and um, a squad car looking for people to, to make arrests on. They saw him. They jumped out. They chased him. Um, Alan tried to resist a little bit, then immediately gave up. Um, one of the officers, one of the, one of the writer's officers named Frank Vasquez, 
um, he knew Delphi, he and Delphi now and knew each other. Uh, they had had a couple interactions before and they got in a little bit of a verbal argument. Uh, Vasquez then said, I'll take your cuffs off and we can go fight. Um, Alan didn't want to do this. Um, another per, uh, just a random person was walking by and Alan pleaded, you know, Hey, these guys are going to beat me up. So that made officer Vasquez very angry officer Vasquez and the other officers threw Delphine Allen in a, in a back of a squad car, uh, they plant Vasquez probably planted drugs on the ground. So Allen became very upset. Um, when he became upset, he started kicking the windows of the squad car. So all these officers, about five of them in this group, pulled Allen out of the squad car, punched him, kicked him. Vasquez emptied a can of pepper spray in Mr. Allen's mouth and face. So Mr. Allen was in really bad shape at this point. He had had drugs planted on him. He had been stopped for no good reason. He had been physically assaulted. But at this point... Frank Vasquez, the officer, and another officer named Jude Siapno allegedly drove Mr. Allen in the middle of the night under a bridge in West Oakland where they allegedly beat him up really badly. And there's, there's some, some medical and other evidence showing this. His, his eye was nearly ruptured from an from a elbow strike. It, the soles of his feet were beaten by, um, allegedly beaten by Officer Siapno, who used this little club device so badly that Mr. Allen could not walk for days afterward. Um, so they, kid they, they, they essentially kidnapped him and drove him under this bridge to beat him up, to teach him a lesson not to, to mouth off to the police. Sick. You know, if, if you got time to do, well, I'm just going to say this. I'm editorializing. If, if you got time to do that, kidnap folk to teach them lessons, then what other actual crime is going on <laughs> that you're sure. neglecting. Uh, you know, I, I remind people of the public en enemy song, 911 is a joke. Uh, the police brutalize us, but when their crimes actually committed, somebody breaks in the house, steal a car, can't find them. Um, and I'm sure there was some, probably some other things that, that needed at least looking into. Oh but, yeah, great, great song, great refrain from yeah. like truth, you know, like. yeah. Call 911 and you get a very different response in certain communities. And I'll just add that the, the kidnapping, the drug planting, the beating. This was a very limited spectrum of, of allegations that were investigated. The police department at the time and the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, they only investigated about one week of activities by the writers. And they purposefully did not expand their investigation to past behaviors and the behaviors of other officers in other parts of the cities. And there were many stories and there was a lot of information at the time that a lot of, a lot of worse things were happening. It's, uh, Ali could talk about another incident, for example, the Jerry Amaro killing. There was, there was just a lot of bad stuff happening all over Oakland that was not limited to the riders in West. Well, yeah. I, I, I want to hear about that, Ali, but as you respond to that, as you explain that, why were these other incidents ignored? Well, um, the riders were not acting on their own volition. They were encouraged by not only their superiors, but the mayor at the time, uh, Jerry Brown, who was governor of California in the 1970s and then the end of the 70s and then 
after he was mayor of Oakland there, late 90s, early 2000s, made his way back up to um, Sacramento once again. Um, he's the predecessor to Gavin Newsom, had another two terms. Before that, he was the state attorney general. But uh, when Jerry Brown campaigned, his he was in the political wilderness during the 80s and a bit of the 1990s as well. And his way back into politics, this is a long-winded way of getting around to it, but it'll make sense, uh, was to kind of fashion himself as this new age, lefty, environmentalist, socially progressive character who would host these kind of seances in downtown Oakland. And he had a show on a, a very left-wing political, um, left-wing news station, KPFA, which is part of the Pacific Network um, during this period. And he campaigned on this, you know, very utopian platform of I'm going to turn Oakland into this green Mecca that'll, you know, have all these wonderful social programs, environmental programs, and really be a city on a hill in, um, in California, in the East Bay. And once he got into the office, uh, we had former members of his administration say, well, you know, he turned around and became Rudy Giuliani West and implemented an NYPD style zero tolerance, um, program for violent crime and disorder, homelessness, what have you, drug use, uh, even had casual disorder. He even had Bill Bratton come and advise him about police policies when he mm -hmm. was taking office initially. Yeah, Bill, Bat Bill Bratton, who um, was the NYPD commissioner under Giuliani, and then came back under Bill uh, de Blasio in the 2010s, who claimed credit for cleaning up New York City's um, violent crime. By the way, that's highly, highly disputed. Anyway, so Jerry Brown would come to police lineups and he would root on the cops and say, I'm, or I'm backing your play, you know, just take these corners back from these drug dealers. It's worth saying that Oakland in the 1980, the 70s, 80s, and 90s really was one of the cities that through deindustrialization, white flight, just broader urban decay that was a national trend, um, really was one of these places that did have a tremendous problem with violent crime. And in the 1980s and 1990s, especially early 1990s, with um, narcotics driven, the narcotics trade and the gun violence that surrounded that. So there are real issues that they're being, law enforcement is being directed to address. Whether or not they're effective at that, you know, our book pretty much makes that claim and others have written about that too. So the issue with Jerry Amaro and the other aspects of why the writer's case wasn't investigated is that the police department itself knew that there were officers like Frank Vasquez, whose nickname was The Choker, by the way, because he liked to choke suspects. Uh, Jude Siapno, nicknamed The Foot Doctor, um, because he liked to beat people's feet till they couldn't walk. Uh, like Chuck Mabinag, their, um, their erstwhile leader. Like Matt Hornug, another member of the Riders Charged, who were operating throughout the city at the same time and engaging in similar conduct. Uh, the civil suit filed uh, by these two attorneys, um, Jim Shane and John Burris, that ended up resulting in the oversight decree. Um, Information that we learned from that investigation showed that there were dozens of other officers with similar allegations. Frank Vasquez was not in West Oakland for most of his career. He was actually in East Oakland on a different side of Lake Merritt. And the allegations that became public about him tracked all the way back to 1995, just one cop. And when you have the, I've been doing this sort of reporting for about 16 years, 17 years. And when you find one officer who tr moves in that sort of pattern, who moves around and engages in similar conduct throughout the city and over multiple years, they're not acting alone because they're bringing in, there's, a, there's an incentive to do this. These cops are active cops. They bring in numbers, they bring in arrests, they make their bosses look, they make the city look, they make the stats look cleaner. They make the politicians 
able to go to community councils and you know local meetings and community boards and say, well, look, you know, we're doing something. We're out here trying to address this disorder and here's the numbers to show it, right? So in a way, they're doing what their bosses want. And the Jerry Amaro case um, is really representative of the sort of just really insidious kind of performance-driven corruption that happened in the city. So Jerry Amaro was a young man in East Oakland, drug addict, um, loving brother, in and out of work, um, just struggled with a lot of issues that many people struggled with. And he was not harming anybody out this one day. He was out just trying to get his fix, right? Because he used heroin. And he rolled up on a street in East Oakland, deep East Oakland, down by the Coliseum, a little bit up the hill from there. And uh, by the way, in Oakland, up the hill and down the hill mean east and west. It literally orients you around the direction, the cardinal directions of the city, the slope. Um, cardinal directions actually are a little bit fungible there. And, um, you know, I wish we'd kind of made that a little bit more of a play up on that in the map that we have at the front of the book. But um, he's trying, he goes up to these, these guys, these who he presumes are dope boys, these people dressed in big puffy jackets and gold chains on a corner and says, hey, look, you know, I need a bag. And um, turns out they're cops. So the reverse sting, it was a group of officers operating out of a local area, local substation, trying to conduct um, basically arrests for numbers. They were selling fake narcotics, bunk narcotics, like baby powder or talcum or something like that. And arresting anybody who came by and take, put a, piling them up in a van, taking them down to the boat station, booking them up. Eight officers, seven officers on this different team. And he runs. The cops pile out of their van, the ones waiting nearby in uniform, pile out of their van, jump on him, tackle him, shove him to the ground, and start kicking him. And one of the officers who piled onto him is the lieutenant in charge of the operation, Ed Polson. And um, Amaro, you know, these people watching it, this is in broad daylight, can hear as he's tackled a crack as he hits the ground, right? And he yelps at Amaro, he yelps out in pain. And then he says, oh, why'd you slam me? Why'd you, and they say, oh, you slammed us first. You know, why, why'd you, you know, why'd you resist? Why were you running? Um, they pile him into the van with the other arrestees and don't pay any attention to this. Oh, I need a doctor. They, they don't pay attention to that. The other folks in the van can see he's sweating, breathing really shallow. He's clearly in distress. Um, you get taken down to the jail and the jailers, um, note that the guy is reporting distress, but they don't really do anything for him for a couple days. Um, so he's just kind of writhing in pain. His cellmates are bringing him food, trying to get him medicine, trying to get him treated. And sooner or later he's discharged. He goes to the doctor, um, at the local public hospital. They show that he's got, his x-rays show he's got broken ribs, messed up pretty bad. And he tries to, you know, gets out. Talk, sees his family, talks about, you know, sees his friends, talks about suing the department. The cops beat me up. He tells a story. And um, one night he crashes at a friend's basement, and wakes up, and his friend wakes up the next morning, goes downstairs, and Jerry's dead. He's just dead, like lying there, cold. Um, and the autopsy afterwards showed that he had sung, his broken ribs had actually punctured his lung. And it was complications from the injuries that he suffered during that arrest that killed him. And uh, in the, co the course of the subsequent police investigation, um, you know, you have what the initial homicide office, homicide investigators seem to find ever they come across evidence. And we've got this, we turned these documents up through old civil suits and a big Freedom of Information Act lawsuit that we filed against the city of Oakland. Um, it becomes apparent that some officers are basically saying, look, you know, 
this is what we heard. We heard that the lieutenant actually bragged about kicking the guy, um, that he was beaten up during the arrest and that he died. And, you know, this is, it wasn't right what happened to him. And yet sooner or later, this homicide investigator goes back to the parents of Jerry Marlowe and says, hey, listen, you know, y'all need to stop making noise about this. He was actually beat up in the streets by, by gang members. And he died as a, as a result of a gang fight in the streets, which is the furthest thing from the truth possible. <laughs> and um, the circumstances around Amaro's death actually they got hushed up and resulted in some pretty bad blowback um, internally in the police department. There were some recriminations. The lieutenant in charge of that operation actually tried to steer a couple of his officers into giving false testimony about that incident and you know, basically avoided being fired because his best man at his wedding was the chief of police, uh, right-hand man. And um, that only came out in 2009. The incident happened in 2000. It came out in 2009 during another police scandal when other members of the department were looking to save their own skin. So it really was one of these cases where the cover-up, I don't, wouldn't want to say it's worse than the crime, but it certainly is as bad as the crime. It was, a, it was really egregious, and it just showed that the rioters were, you know, a fraction of what was wrong with the department at the time. And uh, sorry, one last thing to add here that's kind of important. Ed Paulson, the lieutenant who ran that drug sting and participated in, in the alleged beating of Jerry Amaro, by 2008-9, he was the captain. He had been elevated to captain, and he was in charge of Oakland's Internal Affairs Department. Mm-hmm. So he was in charge of investigating police misconduct allegations in the city, and yet he had done this thing nine years earlier that had been completely covered up in a in a in a in a way that was just deeply wrong. You all also. You, you shared the writers and some of the other cases that that didn't weren't weren't included in what we're currently in. Um, but you also go back into some history, and we can't really say the word Oakland and talk about Oakland without understanding some of the history, even in terms of civil rights movement, the Black Panthers, and all that. Can you talk to a little bit talk a little bit about that and how that history has obviously influence ongoing behavior of officers like the writers. Yeah. Um, just to map it out really briefly. Yeah, we go, we go back to the 1800s to show sort of the origins of the Oakland Police Department. We show how, like a lot of police departments in the United States at the time, it was deeply corrupt. Corruption was kind of the norm um, because the city had like a machine politics at work. So police jobs were patronage. But besides that sort of political function of the police department and some of the crime fighting that it would do on a day-to-day basis, one of its other main functions was keeping the Chinese population in Oakland hemmed into this very small sort of ghetto area that the white population had forced them into. Um, The origins of policing on the West Coast differ in a way. From the East Coast, the East Coast, if you look far back, a lot of policing has its origins in slave patrols and controlling the African-American population. On the West Coast, in many cities, it had a lot to do with um, Chinese immigrants who were being oppressed by the white majority in the 1800s. Um, By the early 1900s, 
um, the police department was being used a lot to infiltrate um, the radical wing of the labor movement. Um, the Oakland Police Department had a loyalty squad and was integral to the attacks on the industrial workers of the world and the Communist Party and some of the other radical left-wing groups that were um, trying to build up a, a labor, you know, the labor movement in the 19-teens through the 1930s and 40s. By the 1950s, Oakland's Black population had grown enormously with migration during World War II. And the 1950s is when the police department shifted its gaze to the Black community and saw itself as one of its primary jobs as being policing Black people in Oakland. Part of the reason is that Oakland's white majority at the time, and especially the people who ran the city, uh, the, the men who ran the city at the time, they initially did not want to accept the fact that Oakland had a new and large Black community. They had viewed Black migration as a temporary necessity during World War II to fuel some of the industries on the West Coast. Yeah, the Bay Area was really the, one of the arsenals of the Pacific Fleet and the war industry, too. You have to remember that the shipyards in West Oakland um, actually preceded the port that's there right now, which is a, one of the biggest ports in the country. And Oakland, Richmond, San Francisco, to a lesser extent, really churned out not just munitions, but foodstuffs as well, too, um, that were really pushed out into the Pacific War effort, which actually took up more manpower for the military than the European theater. Yeah. So by the 50s, the police are fixated on the black community, which is just, it, you know, through housing discrimination, job discrimination, every form of institutional racism, uh, the East Bay black community um is being harmed and so in the 60s yes the the panthers emerge and they they're pushing back really hard on the oakland police department and the panthers and some of the other radical groups um they do manage to force the police department uh to transform in some ways um it's impossible. There was a police chief in the late 1960s named Charles Gain, who was actually interested in genuine reforms um, to try to lessen the damage that the police department was doing to a lot of communities, to try to make the police um, better in a lot of ways. It's impossible to imagine the emergence of someone like him had the Panthers not put so much pressure on the police department um, and had the black community and civil rights attorneys and other allies not spent the 1950s and 1960s, yeah, just investigating police abuses and just constantly pressuring the city's political leadership to change. But yeah, by the 1970s, these social movements, um, they started to unwind for a variety of reasons. They started to fray. Part of it was state repression. Part of it was things like COINTELPRO or the Oakland Police Department's um, aggressive war against the Panthers. Um, part of it was internal dysfunctions and feuds within groups like the Panthers and other, so, uh, other movements. Um, so by the late 1970s, these social movements had pretty much disintegrated in the city. 
And that's when you see the rise of crack cocaine and the flood of guns and heroin into the cities, which combined with poverty, disarray, disinvestment from the federal government, it created very harsh conditions that African-Americans, the growing Latino population, and some of the Asian populations um, had a very difficult time dealing with for several decades through the present. Um, we know about the war with the Black Panther Party. A couple of questions I want to ask. One, and you mentioned COINTELPRO. Um, some of these local police departments, we know several of them, Chicago and all of that, New York. But but is it not also the case with, with Oakland? It, it wasn't so much that um, COINTELPRO had to recruit local police departments. They were kind of voluntarily interested. Yes. Might have, might have actually been doing a local coin pro before the feds came in. Am I right about that? So the Oakland Police Department, our reporting, and a lot of, a lot of people before us um, who've really done tremendous work on that, uh, that front. Uh, one of the best books on this is Subversives by Seth, uh, Seth Rosenthal from a few years back about the FBI's kind of war against the radicals, radicals of the 1960s and 70s in the Bay Area, but it doesn't just touch on use the FBI, it touches on local law enforcement as well. Um, there was a intelligence squad within the Oakland Police Department. Um, there's, still, there's always been a police intelligence unit. That's kind of one of the functions of law enforcement that we really kind of trace out through history is that it's an institution that's used to suppress rest development within the citizenry, be they white radicals, Chinese immigrants, black radicals, brown power folks, the like. And um, in the 1960s, oh, the Oakland Police Department developed a Panther Squad and had a very um, set out methodology for not only tracking individual Panthers, the vehicles that they were in, the people that they associated with, they had a list. For instance, on the night that Huey Newton was stopped by Officer John Frey, that ended in Newton shooting Frey and Frey, sh or Frey and I believe his partner shot Newton, um, and then that was his first homicide trial. There was a list, a clipboard on Officer Frey's dashboard of Panther vehicles associated with him. And the Volkswagen that Huey and his compatriot were driving in was on that list, and he radioed in the incident using a specific radio code for a Panther-related stop. Um, the head of the Oakland Police Department's Panther unit, Ray Brown, also gave seminars throughout the state on uh, how different law enforcement agencies should approach radicals like the Panthers. They traded notes with their colleagues down at the Los Angeles Police Department around the country on the Panthers. Uh, and it's worth keeping in mind, too, the Panther chapters also were fluid. People moved around the country. Um, they went back and forth, and law enforcement were very interested in keeping tabs on them. But this, is, this goes all the way back into the political squads that the Oakland Police Department and other agencies set up in the 1910s and 20s that uh, basically provided the grist, provided the, um, the basic intelligence that allowed, it, allowed the Federal Department of Justice to carry out the Palmer raids and deport hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, left-wing individuals out of the country and arrest them. Uh, police departments gathered that sort of information and the feds acted on it. So it's kind of a long-standing dynamic that exists, um, that existed in American law enforcement. And we actually saw that develop. We saw that play out in the later stages of our reporting. Um, I saw it firsthand during the Oscar Grant movement in 2000, from 2009 on during the Occupy movement later on. Um, there was very, very ample evidence of officers infiltrating demonstrations, which we show tracking individual protesters incredibly closely for people 
you know, these are people just engaged in civil disobedience, um, First Amendment activity, of them seating people inside uh, organizing groups and just keeping tabs and feeding information back to the federal level. Um, you know, it's pretty well established that the feds had an interest in breaking the Panthers and in and exploiting the differences between very real differences, personality clashes, um, power struggles between Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver. Um, there was a very bloody war between not just the between the West Coast Panthers and the East Coast Panther chapters that later became the Black Liberation Army um, in the late 60s, early 70s. And yes, the law enforcement did absolutely work to kind of use that wedge and open the gap up between those um, those elements of the party. They, in, they, they infiltrated, in fact, did they not? Yes, they did. Absolutely. They were undercover agents and yes, all. Sir. And as we commemorate Dr. King, I mean, there were police all around him. Uh, I mean, that's that's another thing that that police did. Not Oakland specifically, but yeah. The, go ahead. I'm sorry. One problem Oakland had in the '60s related to that was they didn't have enough black officers to infiltrate these groups because the department in the '40s, '50s, and even the '60s had so aggressively recruited white officers, including ex-military and white officer, wh uh, white men from the South to become police in Oakland. So they had a little bit of difficulty running these counterintelligence sort of operations yeah. through, through their own just kind of blatantly racist hiring practices. But you're, you're absolutely right. Like the Oakland police, in, if anything, the FBI, they're their efforts to undermine social movements, in particular uh, black social movements, was more nuanced, right? And, and more strategic. The Oakland Police Department was just, they, they, they viewed their job as just going to war with the Panthers. I Absolutely. mean, it would literally drive by the Panther headquarters and just shoot bullets through the plate glass windows. They would just follow the Panthers around in their cars waiting to try to get into some kind of physical altercation they they viewed it as, it was it was this very like heavy-handed kind of brutal there was no real strategic uh nuance to it it was a counterinsurgency i mean it's also worth showing that it's worth discussing the fact that the Oakland police department um not very famously it's they enlisted the hell's angels to break up anti-war marshes um, in the 1960s against left-wing radicals, mostly white radicals in Berkeley. The same folks, the Hells Angels, were also used by the Oakland Police Department, our reporting showed, to gather intelligence on the Panthers. And, all, and because a lot of the Hells Angels were, you know, local whites from the working class areas of East Oakland, they were used essentially as kind of an auxiliary, not just to keep the Panthers out of certain areas of East Oakland, but also to gather information on where they kept their guns, their explosives, their money, where their house, their safe houses were, even while the Hells Angels were essentially running an international methamphetamine trafficking operation that went as far as Australia. So, you know, they, the department used, police use right-wing auxiliaries throughout right. history. There's earlier evidence of that with the American Legion in the 1910s and 20s. Um, the John Birch Society as well. We can, I don't want to give away too much but it's in there. No, no, no. Um, I was ready. But, but what I want to do, but before we leave, just one of the area I want to approach before we wrap up. You mentioned, the, the, you talk about the crack and powder cocaine, I mean, the crack epidemic, the, the, the 
proliferation of guns. Did you did, did you find any evidence? Uh, and you mentioned planting. You know, we we later found out, and and I, I knew Gary Webb. Um, I worked with him and Maxine Waters and Dick Gregory um, and Joe Madison to expose all of that uh, uh, up until his untimely death. Uh, but did you all uncover any evidence? Not only obviously you have evidence of, of drugs being planted, but uh, and we're talking about Oakland now any evidence that uh, police were either involved in the proliferation of drugs, crack specifically, but drugs in general, widespread throughout the African-American community or in other neighborhoods, and the proliferation of guns. Are, are, are the cops implicated in that type of activity? Because, you know, still, I'm a 56-year-old I'm black man, and no one, no one in my generation, before or after, can explain the proliferation. They're everywhere, it's just there. Mm -hmm. These things are in our communities, but nobody can really figure out, well, how do they really get in there? Where do they come from? And we can't find the one black person or the one black group of people that is importing all of this into our community. Yeah, that's a very, Gary Webb's reporting. Um, again, this is the San Francisco Bay Area. He worked for the San, Francisco, uh, San Jose Mercury News, um, which is on the south end of the region, but his reporting still holds up to time. Um, you know, his book, uh, Dark Alliance, really lays out and fleshes out the reporting that his newspaper editors did not really stand behind. And yes, you know, the <clears throat> flood of narcotics into the Bay Area um, really does tie in with the bigger influx of narcotics from Central America into the U.S. writ large. Um, Oakland kind of down the pipeline. It's not really at kind of the reception points like Texas or Southern California. Um, the narcotics that came into the country, you know, we didn't really dive into that too much. We did find evidence of individual police officers being in the pay of significant figures in the narcotics world, um, get passing on information, um, tipping people off ahead of time to raids and so forth. There were two officers actually in the mid eighties who were charged and convicted. Um, of doing such. But, you know, in terms of the influx of firearms, Oakland really did see, there are a couple of things that influenced that. One, Oakland is relatively close to Nevada. Um, it's a short drive away on four hour drive away if you're going slow on um, I-80. And Nevada's gun laws are very lax. Some of the stuff, some of the hardware that's on the street today in, is, in Oakland is definitely not street legal in California. And, you know, we're talking about 50 caliber Barrett rifles, um, automatic machine guns with drum magazines on it. That's the current development. Um, then there's also the port too, which is not really policed well. So it's easy to get stuff in and out of the area. But no, we didn't dive too much into that aspect of things. And there weren't really scandals in the Oakland Police Department's history that showed large scale involvement of officers in narcotics, either narcotics trafficking or weapons running. It's not to say it's not to say that that didn't happen, but yeah, we didn't turn up yeah. any strong evidence that showed it. Um, one other quick story: there used to be a firearms store in San Leandro, a little town just south of Oakland, and this firearms store famously sold 
many, many thousands of, fi- of guns into Oakland from the 1960s, 1970s into the 80s. Um, oddly enough, police officers used to shop there and they would go into the store. And this, I mean, this store would advertise in the Oakland Tribune newspaper with full-blown ads that were like, buy an Uzi, it's on sale. Buy- yeah, 40% off. Yeah, buy a buy a Saturday night special, you know, twenty percent off and free box, you know, thirty two caliber. Um, and cops used to go in there to buy their wares, and they would go in there and they would see people from the street who were involved in, uh, you know, the narcotics economy or other parts of the Oakland underworld, and they would see these individuals in there purchasing masses of firearms, also. Um, through their girlfriend, strawberry. Yeah, yeah, and the, so you know, but more recently, that so that that gun store has long been closed, and firearms in California, of course, are like heavily regulated. But like Ali said, we've got these neighboring states now, and yeah, there's you know several cases that the federal uh, prosecutors bring every year on firearms trafficking into Oakland. Um, huge amounts of guns just flowing in from these other states, and. You know, the people at the top of that, you know, that economy are typically white men who own these like large gun stores in Arizona and Nevada and Oregon, Georgia and these other states. And the people who get busted for the crime of trafficking tend to be black and Latino men who are at the very bottom of that economy and are just kind of making the smallest amounts of money from bringing and taking the most risk to bring some of those guns into Oakland. So there is, there is, you know, I, I think that's one of the main ways firearms come into play. In terms of like going back decades, it's really hard to say how huge amounts of guns first started entering Oakland. More research does need to be done there. Yeah, I do think that in terms of law enforcement trafficking and firearms, one of the ways in which um, I just thought of this, I'd done a lot of work in Southern California over the years, and there are a number of cases of cops using a their um, law enforcement sort of ability. There's a exemption to California's firearms law that allow law enforcement to purchase different types of firearms and different quantities of firearms. And they've some, in some cases, prosecutors and other investigators have tracked individual officers per, basically buying firearms in bulk and then reselling them illegally. Um, I know that there have been a few cases involving LAPD officers doing such. Um, I believe there was maybe a captain who did that recently. But again, that's in a region which is a little bit further away from that kind of hub in Northern California. Also, it's worth keeping in mind that now a lot of these firearms go the other way. They go to Mexico. That's really where the market is for a lot of these firearms. And as a result of that, um, because of the way in which there's kind of a demand for... So Oakland is actually in the 2010s was kind of unique because Unlike other California cities, it was really one of these places where people wanted to keep up armoring. They wanted to kind of show that they had a bigger gun than the next guy. So they would buy extended magazines. You started to see pistols with 30 round clips, 50 round drums on them. They became very common by 2010, 2011. Um, You started to see that with rifles. Now you're with 3D printing, you're getting these things. You're getting a lot of switches getting made that can turn semi-automatic weapons to fully automatic. Um, kits that can basically put a shoulder stock on a pistol and turn it into a carbine. Uh, the ways in which the fire, and there are different people involved in this. It's kind of an opportunistic um, trend that really came around with 3D printing. But the ways in which the street environment in Oakland has changed in time, um, you know, the problems that really 
became very rampant in the 1970s and 80s and 1990s are now really entrenched. And there's all these different ancillary markets that have come off that. And that where we've kind of seen that that's what, you know, is driving the city's current trend at gun violence and the current situation on the streets there. Folks, the book is entitled The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. The current uh, pattern practice consent decree. Is there a sunset on it? Not really. Um, it's it's the $10,000 question right there. Yeah, well, no, the, the you know, million plus dollar question because yeah. that's how oh, yeah. you cost the city of Oakland millions a year um, to pay for the monitoring. But it's up, it's up to a federal judge to decide when the city and the police department have gained full compliance. And there is a there is a hearing. It's where, you know, this is January. There's a hearing at the end of this month um, on, on the Oakland police department's compliance and they'll determine whether or not, you know, they're on track to potentially end the negotiated settlement agreement by this year. Um, but it could be extended further if, if more problems emerge from the department. Yeah. And I guess probably more of a, a rhetorical question because do they ever really have sunsets and should they? You know, yes, it's, it's kind of like the Voting Rights Act, you know. Yeah, you, we wish we had a, a system where all of these could be reviewed every so often to determine whether or not they should still be under some type of supervision. Sure. Yeah, you're, making, you're making a great point. Um, a lot of the consent decrees the federal government through its Department of Justice has brought, they bring them to an end. And it's clear in some cases that it's quite premature in Los Angeles, for example, they went through a consent decree, they reformed the police department, but in recent years, they've seen enormous scandals emerging from that yeah. police department involving racial profiling and brutality and problematic police cultures. Sexual exploitation. Yeah, you could say that of many of the departments that have been put under these consent decrees. Um, just, sorry, really quickly, one thing we try to do in our book is to, is to show how the consent decree and the court itself and this this main way that uh, that our society tries to reform police departments it's quite limited in terms of what it can do um what we observed as reporters looking broadly at the city of oakland is that the thing that appears to work to reduce somewhat the harm that policing is doing to specific communities is just like huge amounts of unending pressure from social movements from civil rights attorneys, from the clergy, from other community leaders, just pressuring the department constantly to seek transparency and accountability. That appears to work. And when that's removed, that's when the problems emerge. No, it, it has to do with engagement. I think that one of the reasons why um, Oakland has been able to not only be there, there have been positive things that have made that there have been positive steps that have been taken. There's a lot more of an oversight structure for the Oakland Police Department and accountability to the citizens than there was even five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. Um, it has changed remarkably. But that being said, it does have to do with the city's constituency. It has to do with decades, over half a century of very sustained pressure and awareness within the community that this is something that cannot be left uh, to the city, to the administration itself. Um, you know, you see different dynamics in different cities, but because Oakland is not that large, 400,000, 420,000 people, um, it's small enough that there is a there can be a tight enough focus on these issues, even as the city continues to struggle and with varying levels of success, 
um, depending on political administration, the type of police program put in place um, and other measures to the issue of violent crime and poverty and the other issues of which police are allegedly supposed to address. So it does kind of show that this is not the sort of thing that can be addressed with a summer of protest or one court case or, you know, silver bullet from the federal department of justice, which as our reporting shows, just isn't, it's a technical program. It's not lasting reform if it doesn't stick. And you, the only way you can make it stick is by basically keeping your foot on the neck of the department and saying, Hey, look, we're not going to let you get away with this. We're going to keep, we're going to keep eyes on you. Right. And in California, I actually will say that on a statewide level, there's been a lot of legislation passed in, I want to say the past seven, eight years. That's really changed around um, what Ruth Wilson Gilmore really framed an academic called the Golden Gulag. Um, California is very pro-law enforcement, three strikes and you're out. Um, lock them up, throw away the key prison state and the law enforcement structure that basically fed into that. Um, there has been a lot of progress on the state level. Sure, it's certainly not a perfect um, perfect place, but I think that there has been this sort of movement. Oakland is kind of, it's one of many cities that really has a constituency that's pushing in the direction of progress and change and, you know, a better life for everyone. Well, you mentioned, you know, all different things that take place when it comes to police accountability uh, from social movements, protests, consent decrees. I would uh, nominate what you have done with this book as just another spoke on the wheel of us getting to this accountability. This is what these two gentlemen have done, folks, is very, very important. And um, you know, I always remind people in the work that I do, uh, police are governed locally. Um, you know, it's not like there's some uh, national panacea to do. Joe Biden can't fix the police uh, from the White House. Uh, Twitter, we can't tweet away police problems, all right? And it, folks, you all heard me preach this gospel all the time. It is really about local politics. As we celebrate Dr. King, he went to the cities. If Dr. King were alive today, people would say, hey, form a national organization and get, a, get on social media and get as many likes and followers as you can, right? Not go into Montgomery and Birmingham and, and live and work amongst the people there. We don't do that as much, but this is an example of that. And, and I, I try to encourage people in local communities to think that way. People want, people want to run, you know, want to run for Senate on the first try. No, we need people on the city council because that's what oversees the police. And so, and, and, but what I think these two have done folks again is, is chronicle, um, information. They're providing information. In, in a sphere, in a universe of ubiquitous disinformation we're facing right now, and some of that even coming from law enforcement. So this is very important, and perhaps even a template, not perhaps, it is a template, uh, even for others who work in local journalism or work in local communities, how to chronicle, how to document, and how to present facts so that there is this body of work and this body of evidence. And so Ali and Darwin have done that, check out the book, encourage others to check it. And it's very timely in light of Dr. King's uh, birthday. We know the role law enforcement played in his untimely death also. So folks, the book, it is available everywhere, fresh out. It debuted January 10th. So it's just right out here right now. 
The rioters come out at night. Brutality, corruption, and cover-up in Oakland. Simon & Schuster, available everywhere. Please check it out. Gentlemen, thank you both very, very much. And this has been excellent. We thank you for joining us on Make It Plain. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.